Hey, it's Nick Walters again with the National uh, Hemp Growers Industrial Hemp Growers Digest uh, podcast. So we are glad to be back with you once again and having our regular favorites uh, of uh, Whit Steinecker and Hunter Robinson from uh, the Bradley uh, Law Firm and they're particularly in their um cannabis group and we enjoy hearing from them each month about things to think about as far as legal updates and what's going on in the world of of industrial hemp particularly as it relates to legal issues we need to be aware of or trends or other things that are happening from there so uh wet and hunter welcome and happy new year to you thanks so much happy new year to you we're glad you glad y'all are back with us so um why don't we talk a little bit about um, intellectual property? You know, um, I would guess with the diversity of the different types of products uh, that can be developed from hemp, particularly when we get into the fiber side, and I guess in some of the bioplastic side and things like that too, the amount of intellectual property that's out there to be able to produce that 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 end product is probably super deep and wide right it is it definitely is um and as almost everything else that we talked about uh on when we've come on the podcast uh it's it's new and emerging and it's it's kind of gray um and there's some trends developing that we can we can look at but frankly it's you know the relationship between cannabis and the intellectual property laws of the United States is complicated. And uh, in, 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 frankly, it mirrors the, the relationship with cannabis and sort of the state and federal level. And, and that really is sort of the root of the, of the complication is that you have um, these products that have varying level, varying you know, legal statuses uh, within states and jurisdictions within states. And then you have the federal government uh, in charge of trademarks and patents as a general matter. And they have reached some results that are frankly, you know, inconsistent and hard to explain. But, and, and that's really unfortunate, I think, for the cannabis industry, um, because especially in the hemp space, because, you know, for two reasons. One, you know, the law abhors uncertainty. And it, it, when, when, you, when, when the rules are clear, that's when you see uh, otherwise, uh, ready to blossom industry have its growth stunted for you know really no good reason, and people are less less likely to invest money and resources into something when you know they can't have their own intellectual property protected. And then you know the, the second reason that it's unfortunate is that people in the cannabis space are some of the most creative people on the planet, and that's frankly where intellectual property laws would probably be the most valuable. And they come up with cool ideas. You want to make sure that those ideas are protected. Um, and so what we'll talk about a little bit today is uh, I'll talk briefly about patents um, in the cannabis space. And then I'll open the, uh, open the floor for Hunter to talk more about trademarks. But, you know, neither of us are spend most of our time on patents and trademarks. We know just enough to be dangerous. But I do think this is one of those areas of the law where you'd be well advised to, to use counsel. Um, you don't have to have a lawyer to do this. Uh, just as you don't have to have a lawyer to start a corporation. You could use something like LegalZoom or do it yourself. 
but that's sort of like doing your own taxes. Um, and there's a lot of uh, mistakes that can be made for the unwary, and not all the things that we're going to talk about today will be obvious. Right. Uh, in, fact, in fact, some of them are pretty counterintuitive. So cool. um, I, I offer that sort of at the head, and Nick, as always, jump in with any any questions as we go. But <clears throat> just uh, briefly on patents. So and we're going to see how this is distinguished from trademarks. But a patent, is, the purpose of a patent is to uh, encourage innovation and to incentivize uh, you know, technological developments. And the, the federal government's made the, the, the determination that the way to do that is to give someone the exclusive use of their invention, if it's a novel enough invention uh, and different from the status quo, you'll have uh, an exclusive period of use throughout the whole United States. So if you develop a better way to, um, if you develop something made of hemp, uh, or even a uh, piece of equipment that makes it easier to process hemp, and it's different than anybody's ever done, you very well may be eligible to receive a patent. Um, and in fact, the federal government has issued a number of patents for genetic clones uh, of the cannabis plant. And that's a place where if you feel like you've developed a strain and that nobody else has ever used that strain before, then you can apply for and maybe be issued a patent for that, which means you're the only one who can use that strain for a period of time. And you know those things are very valuable. Ask, um, uh, you know, pharmaceutical company how valuable it was to have uh, the Viagra um, patent. You know, for uh, I think which I think is just now gone uh, generic, and now you're seeing people sell it for a dollar when you know they were selling for many multiples of that. You know, when there was a patent. So uh, these this can, this can bring great value to your business if you're able to get one. And that's something that particularly a, a grower, <clears throat> particularly one who was um, trying to utilize uh, science and some sort of new scientific method will want to be on the, the lookout for in, in two different ways. One, are they doing something that might be sufficiently novel and non-obvious to get themselves a patent, which of course would uh, make their business more valuable. Uh, and if so, they should you know look into uh, applying for a patent. And then two, if they're not doing that, are they in fact uh, violating someone else's patent? Uh, because that would be you know, something where uh, that could make their uh, business a lot less valuable because it would be it would subject them to um, a claim of patent infringement and the litigation and expenses to go along with that. So even if you have no interest at all in getting your own patent, you want to make sure that you're not running afoul of someone else's patent. So um, you know those are things that. Uh, an experienced patent attorney could probably help you with in relatively short order, particularly the second one. You know, could let you, you know you could tell them what you're doing, and they could run a search to make sure that that's not run, running afoul of any um, other uh, patents that are currently being issued. And it's a little bit more time consuming if you want to get your own patent, but again, the value that it brings uh, typically dwarfs the uh, expenses that you uh, incur to to get it. So. You know, is that why it takes so long? I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, that it takes yeah. so long for you to do that. So let's just say a decortication, a piece of decortication equipment. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and I believe that I've got a way to do it and I do it this particular way. And I've got this really way. Then Hunter comes along and says, yeah, but your last three steps on there could really be kicked in quicker with this super cool 
device that I've added to this other equipment that's there. And so for I want the patent, my my mousetrap is going to be better for part of that. Well, somebody at the patent office has got to figure out what a decorticator is and how it matches up and how you take this one to match up with that one. And yes, indeed, what you do have is really unique. And so therefore it is eligible for a patent for, for you to, to, to issue that and going through all of that stuff, doing the testing and all that stuff. Is that the kind of stuff that the patent office actually does or they contract that out or. Well, yeah, it, it ultimately falls to them. And I think, you know, they certainly can um, contract it out if they wish, but I think frankly, that's what they do. That's what the examining attorneys do. Um, and another one of the reasons, and again, it does come with a cost, but another one of the reasons that you want to hire someone with experience doing this is that they can oftentimes arm the uh, patent examiner with that type of information in advance and help sort of steer that process a little bit. Or when the patent examiner has questions, they know they can contact somebody who will understand the types of questions that are being asked, the significance of certain lines of inquiry. And so, you know, if the patent attorney gets back and says, I'm not seeing anything that shows sort of the non, non-obviousness of this, but, you know, something being not obvious is an element of, of obtaining a patent. Uh, that's where somebody with experience in sort of the patent law, the, the cases that make up the law, um, that's where they can really be of value as opposed to um, someone who, you know, is an equipment manufacturer who just says, look, I just came up with it. This is, you know, this was, it has to be new because it was sort of my idea. Well, that doesn't mean that two people can't have come up with the same idea. It doesn't mean you copied somebody, but if it's not in fact new, um, then it's ineligible. So those are the types of things that go on. A lot of times there's a, there ends up being a back and forth between the applicant and the patent office where the patent office, you know, initially doesn't issue the patent, but has some questions or concerns. And it's the same thing with trademarks. Hunter can talk about that, but um, when there, when there are those concerns, there's almost always an opportunity for the applicant to explain uh, why those concerns uh, aren't in fact the case or to tweak the application to address the concerns, things like that. So yeah, that's oftentimes why it takes well over a year for a patent to, to be issued. Um, and it's not something you want to take lightly. You know, if you don't have something that's that's actually of value, it's probably not worthwhile because it'll take time and money. Uh, but if you do have something that's valuable, then um, then I think it's well worth at least considering. Um, and almost any reputable attorney will give you a, a, a consult on that um, and can, can walk you through the steps um, uh, at, at no cost or very little cost uh, to, so that you understand sort of what you're getting into. Um, the one thing I would note on the, and this is, this applies a little more to the sort of patenting a clone or a genetic um, structure than it does to a piece of equipment, but it sort of applies to the equipment as well. And that is the fact that it was, there was no such thing legally as hemp before the 2014 and really the 2018 farm bill means that there's kind of a black hole of information from everything you know from the mid 19 mid middle of the last century up until you know let's call it 20 2015 and therefore proving that something is new may actually be a little bit harder because it very well may be that whereas in every other industry whenever somebody has a new valuable idea they rush out to get a patent it would have been the case you know for the 
prior 75 or 65 years that you intentionally would avoid sharing with the federal government, you'd come up with a new strain of an illegal product. And so there now, if you go back and say, well, this is new, it may be that it's not new, but it just wasn't publicized. And that doesn't mean you can't get a patent on it, but it might restrict some of the geographical limitations of the patent. It may be that somebody else who was in fact using this is allowed to use it exclusively in the area where they operate and you can have the rest of the United States, or it may be that your patent is subject to being challenged in litigation later. And so that's just one thing to think about and think through. It may be that the way you do something could not have been done in the past, in, in which case you don't have that issue. But it's just one last little thing to think about. You'll, you don't have to think about it in almost any other industry, but just because of the nature uh, and of the evolving legality of, of hemp that uh, we have to consider as we go. Um, and, and so before I turn and make, again, jump in, but before I turn to trademarks and, and let Hunter take over, I'll just note the difference in a trademark and a patent from a policy perspective. The, again, the patent is to incentivize the creator of the new thing. The trademark is to protect a consumer from being confused by what products they're accessing in the marketplace. It's not to incentivize the clever person who came up with the name. Now, it ends up having that benefit if you come up with a cool trademarkable idea and you get a trademark, uh, there's value to it, a benefit to it. And that's why you should uh, utilize the trademark process. But when you think about the, the, what the government's trying to get at there, they're trying to make sure that the consumer in the marketplace, uh, there's not a likelihood that they'll be confused uh, when they hear your name about what product it is. So Hunter, um, I'll turn it over to you um, and I'll remain available for questions and I'll probably interject from time to time. Okay, Matt, Matt let, let, let me get this. Let's, let's use something that would be for somebody simple like me, okay, to understand. You can't go patent a hamburger, but I could trademark Whataburger and Wendy's and McDonald's. I mean, a Big Mac is a trademarked thing, right? I can't patent the hamburger, you know, unless the I'm- name, The name Big Mac and the logo for Big Mac, maybe. The burger itself would not be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm in the decortication, what comes out the back end of the decortator, <laughs> it might very well be within the trademark realm because it's got some particular thing to it. The decorticator itself may or may not, depending on how you how it's all built and how it's manufactured, may not be a patentable thing. So in the industry, you have to kind of really think about kind of where do I fit in that in that process. Is that kind of right? Yeah, I think the so the distinction there would be the decorticator itself, the the machinery, if you know, you were the first person to come up with that machinery, that could have a patent, those kind of processes and pieces within it. The name of the so if you called it the Nickicator or whatever, you know, that the branding, the logo that was on it, that would be what's trademark. As we should call it that. Okay. Just, <laughs> just, for, the, just for the record. Okay. That's exactly what it should be called. Right. I hear you. Well, did I did I handle that softball correctly? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, moving on to trademarks and and what kind of and, and I think that example kind of gave uh, 
kind of handled the first piece of my presentation, which is what exactly is a trademark and what is trademarkable. So trademarks are kind of about branding. So, you know, what you trademark is a name, a logo, a tagline, um, the design of packaging. Um, design may be a bad word. A patent, uh, you could get a patent on how packaging works, but kind of the look of the packaging could be something that's trademarked. Um, and as it relates to hemp, you know, there's kind of a couple couple pieces to this puzzle. Um, the first is kind of laying out what the USPTO, which is the Patent and Trademark Office, has allowed to be trademarked in the hemp space. Um, and then the second piece is sort of strategies to get some sort of protection for those things, those sort of products that they have not allowed so far. Um, so some to lay some down some foundation first. So we know that hemp has been legalized under the Farm Bill. Um, a lot of people listening to this podcast will also know that the FDA and FTC have said certain for certain types of hemp products, uh, specifically CBD products, um, are not legal under federal law um, based on how they are marketed and sold. Generally, that is foods and dietary supplements containing CBD. Um, the FDA and FTC has taken position that those are not currently legal under federal law. So one of the things you have to do to get a federal trademark is it has to be something that is lawfully sold in commerce. So that's kind of the first distinction there is um, the USPTO has not allowed trademarks for dietary supplements, foods, and beverages containing CBD, because those are not lawful in commerce under the USPTO's position. The because other, the FDA has not given it the okay, right? That's so for, once that, all that happens, then yeah, you're in another whole ball game of a mad rush for potential on trademarks, right? Because once it I mean, that's a potential thing, right? That That's correct. So, and that is going to be something, and that's kind of, we get to the second piece of kind of strategies to get some sort of protection for those products. That is a good reason is it is, or one of the reasons that it's important is you can start to get a little bit of protection for them. And that may tee you up to get the full protection or to be the one that gets the full protection for that certain, certain branding or that certain product. Um, when the FDA and FTC kind of change their tune, mostly the FDA in this, in this regard. Um, and so the FDA and FTC have said that uh, topicals containing CBD are legal under federal law, as long as they meet certain requirements that, that are kind of outside the scope of this presentation. Um, so that is something that is that you can get a trademark on from the USPTO is a topical containing CBD. Think of the, you know, creams from muscle aches, body moisturizers, um, those sort of products um, are legal and you should be able to get a, you know, as long as you jump through the correct hoops, you can get a trademark on those sort of products. Uh, there's also kind of separately from the FDA world is just, you know, the, the hemp products in general, hemp, hemp products that aren't made from in, made for ingestion, um, hemp fibers, hemp plastics, that kind of stuff, FDA, that is outside the FDA's purview. Um, and are generally legal under the farm bill. So you shouldn't have any issues trademarking those again, if you jump through the right hoops. And so where that leaves us, or actually before I transition to the second part, um, there are a couple hemp trademarks that have been issued by the USPTO in certain categories that kind of fall uh, through the cracks of the categories that I've laid out so far. 
Um, so these are just some good things to note. Uh, the USPTO has issued trademarks for hemp cigarettes. Um, they've issued trademarks for e-cigarette liquid or vape juice more colloquially um, and cartridges containing CBD. Um, so those are, you know, products that, that you may have thought would not be trade that you couldn't get a trademark one that the USPTO has allowed thus far. Um, that's the sort of application you should be extra cautious with and should certainly get a lawyer to help you with, to make sure that is described correctly in the application to increase the chances of sailing through. Um, and so now I want to talk about some kind of things you can do to get around or to get some protection for, um, ingestibles, CBD product, you know, hemp products containing, I'm sorry, foods, beverages, and dietary supplements containing CBD and potentially Delta eight as well. Some of the more, um, unfortunately still controversial products. I'll put it that way. Um, so one of the things you can do is so say you have a dietary supplement that contains cbd can't get a trademark on that but what you can do is maybe get it to travel under the same brand name as some apparel that you sell or um, maybe a cbd topical and then you can get a trademark protection for the topical or maybe for the apparel brand and get a trademark on that brand name. So say, you know, Robinson Cannabis, that's a bad example for reasons we'll talk about at the end, but just something basic like that. So I get that trademarked for, so I can put it on apparel. That trademark will not cover my dietary supplement, but if you have competitors out there looking at, you know, kind of seeing how they want to brand themselves and they see that they'll never be able to get a trademark on that apparel, um, with that brand name, maybe that discourages them from branding their, their dietary supplements the same way. Um, some more, you know, and if you get a CBD topical, that's, I think that's even closer. You can get his trademark on the topical and then brand the dietary supplement in a similar fashion. Um, and then you will get some kind of tertiary trademark protection for the supplement as well. Um, some more, <laughs> Uh, creative solutions that probably have less of a chance of working, but uh, some things you can think about as well is say you have CBD gummies. You could make uh, samples of those gummies that do not contain CBD. You can sell them to your vendors, your retail, say you're a your distributor for them. You can sell them to your retailers. You got to make sure they got to be sold. So you got to make sure your retailer pays for those non-CBD containing samples. But if you establish that you're using those edibles or gummies, um, that don't contain CBD, you can potentially get trademarks protection for those non-CBD containing gummies. And then you have your CBD ones sitting beside it um, that are not uh, explicitly protected, but are protected in, in, in practical effect. So, you know, and there's other, there's other kind of strategies, you know, so a lot of times you put an application together for a brand. So you say Robinson Cannabis again, and you say, I want protection for my apparel, my topicals, my supplement, my vape juice, my cartridges, everything traveling under that application. An umbrella, kind of an umbrella, umbrella thing. That's what I'm umbrella application. all these things, right. And that's the way you would, you would generally do it for efficiency's sake in a less controversial industry. Um, one thing you may think about doing for that, say you want to try to get protection on everything, including the supplement. Uh, you can split up your application and send the apparel and the topicals under one application and then send a separate application that has the more controversial um, categories or the categories that you don't think you're going to sell through. 
Um, that way it doesn't hold up your entire application. Maybe that for the apparel and for the topical, it gets granted in 12, 14, 16 weeks, something like that. Uh, the PTO, USPTO is going to want to chew on that other application more, but that way um, your entire, you at least get some protection as you go along, gotcha. uh, which can be helpful. So there's all kind of little, little ways to play with it there that, that, you know, can increase your likelihood of getting something um, and can kind of speed up the process for you. And that's something that, that you're going to want to talk to council about for sure. Uh, I kind of wanted to conclude with kind of some general uh, thoughts on trademarks that aren't specific to cannabis or hemp, um, but are things to think about, especially for people that are kind of coming up with their brand now or launching a new product. Um, generally for, for branding, for logos, that kind of thing, the more distinctive it is, the better. Um, some things are so generic that they cannot be trademarked. Um, but you know, the strength of your trademark is that the likelihood that it is granted and the strength of it, if it is granted, um, will increase kind of the more creative you are. Um, and certain kind of there's certain buckets, um, for to, to, we'll use a brand name as an example. So there's kind of brand names that are fanciful, brand names that are arbitrary and brand names that are suggestive. And those are kind of the three, uh, three things to strive for here. So a fanciful brand is something totally made up. So, uh, think of Leafly, which is a, a cannabis publication. That's a made up word. Um, and so that is kind of extra creative for lack of a better word. There's less of a chance of people copying it. There's less of a chance of something like that being used in the past. Um, something that's arbitrary, that's generally kind of a, uh, a word you don't like to hear about something that you're trying to do, but in this case it's good. So arbitrary means it's something that is not related to the product itself. So think of something like Rome cannabis. That's, that's a brand that's out there. Uh, Rome is not something that has to do with cannabis or hemp in general. It's a word that's disconnected from the product. That's something that makes it more creative. Um, and then something that is suggestive is, is a good thing to strive for as well. So there's a brand of, of rolling papers called Royal Highness. That's suggestive of what those, uh, those rolling papers can do for you. That's something that's a little bit more marijuana than hemp, but it was a good example. So I figured I'd show, share it. Um, Same plan. Same plan. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And then, you know, so something on the other side of the spectrum, something that is kind of descriptive or generic. Um, can be so descriptive or generic that it is not trademarkable in general, or it, you know, it'll have less of a less uh, kind of protective effect if it is. So something like my example, I've been using Robinson Cannabis. That doesn't really tell you anything about the product. It's just my last name. Something like you know Nashville Hemp or Birmingham Hemp, uh, stuff like that. Um, you may not even be able to get protected, and if you do. Uh, you know, you're not going to, A, it's probably just not great branding if you want to spread beyond those cities and B, uh, you know, you're going to get less kind of IP protection from it. And with that, I'll open it up to questions. Nick, what, which you didn't interject, which makes me think I either did a really good or a really bad job. So, all right, let's, let, let, so let's, let's go back. I can't trademark the word hempcrete. I would guess just because it's been used in so many different places and it's such a kind of in the common vernacular or whatever it would be the term, but I might could trademark quit Creek if I wanted to. Right. Or I might be able to say 
be ham, you know, hempcrete as a term, because that is some specific thing. And we're using water out of the Coosa River or something. And that for that reason, we're using it for this way. And that's what makes it difference in my way I market it. But as far as the patent office is concerned, the trademark folks are concerned. Now you might have made it something a little bit more unique. And so they're kind of making a judgment call right on whether that really fits or not. Is that that's correct? And 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 Whit mentioned with respect to patents, kind of the first step, especially if you engage counsel for it, will kind of be the search and the diligence. Um, same thing on trademarks. So trademarks, when you submit an application, and I alluded to this earlier, you have different product categories that you can get protected. Um, so you know, say somebody else, hempcrete so specific, it won't really work for this example. But let's just say Robinson my last name. Um, If I see somebody in my geographic area that is using, you know, Robinson excavation, and I want to, and that is for, you know, whatever the product category is, excavation services or, you know, whatever, um, or construction. I want to do Robinson hemp. I can get that. Just because somebody's used Robinson for a different sort of business doesn't necessarily mean that I can't use it for my hemp apparel and hemp packaging. Um, so that's kind of one of the things that you search for is are you doing your diligence to see who's been using a name. If anybody's been using the exact same name, but a different product category, you may be good. Um, and then you get into similar names as well. So whether you, um, you know, uh, 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 something that is sort of like what you're doing, that can also impact whether you'll be able to get a trademark on it. Um, you can't just, you know, if you called a Big Mac a big whack and branded it on a hamburger, trademark office is probably going to say, no, you're obviously just copied. You're trying to ride the coattails of the Big Mac brand. Right, right. Or I called um, it a Big Mac and I add a K on the end of, the, of Mac. Yes, right? I mean, that's certainly not working. That's big, not whack, big whack, maybe, but probably not. <laughs> big Mac with a K, definitely not. <laughs> and this all goes back to the um, the customer confusion thing. The whole the idea that you could have the same, uh, let's just call it a slogan, uh, for an excavation company and a hemp company, it shows you sort of the policy idea that it's not to uh, grant Hunter exclusive use of a cool term that he came up with. It's to protect the consumer from thinking they're buying one thing from buy- instead buying another. And so they're not going to be confused if they're looking for an excavator when they are wow. holding a bottle of uh, hemp-derived CBD or a, you know hemp cloth. Uh, it, it, that way, for that reason, um, there's not a, a, a trademark problem uh, necessarily. So I got you. That's how that plays out. Well, well, here's here's the here's the uh, uh, hopeful uh, real softball question here. Why in the world would anybody think they could do all this without having legal counsel go do this for them? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it just I mean, I know I can file my own taxes, you know, in theory. But who would be such a buffoon as to think that you were going to go do Maybe it's just my own personal taxes. Maybe. OK. But if I've got a business and we've got multiple things going on and we're trying to figure all that out, you know, it, I, I, I just don't understand the amount of time that you would spend thinking that you think you know what you're doing while you're trying to figure all this stuff out. I think it's, you know, I don't know why somebody would. Maybe that's yeah. not a question as a statement. Okay. But yeah, yeah, you should you should you should you should call a lawyer on this one. Um it's it really the patents are definitely more expensive than the trademarks, but the trademarks can be 
um, pretty inexpensive. And if you have something you think is valuable, then it's, it's worth protecting, then it's, it's certainly worth what you're going to pay for a lawyer uh, for either of them. And I mean, I will say one other thing. This may be slightly less important to growers than it would be to a uh, retailer uh, or a processor, particularly if you were trying to come up with a um, a cool name that you can use to sell a product. You know, a grower theoretically could just have you know a very generic name. And fr- frankly, we actually encourage our hemp clients to to use names that. There's Delta 8 that, that was subject to some litigation recently called Barely Legal, which is a pretty creative name for Delta 8, but no surprise, uh, it sells <laughs> in some hot water legally. And so you have to balance these things of what is, uh, you balance these things that are very much intention, which is you know generating consumer enthusiasm and marketing and sales versus the more conservative approach that's going to keep you out of hot water. Now, a, a grower... Uh, again, may not have that sort of issue, but they may have a cool name and they may have a name that sort of resonates with processors that they want to sell to, or, or they just like having a cool name. I mean, there's certainly, if that's something that's important to you, you can, you can do that and you can uh, very often get a trademark, but those are the other kind of things you want to consider, you know, how, how valuable is it actually to have? And it may be that you decide, I mean, you can always use, as long as someone else has a trademark, you can always use a name without having a trademark. In fact, it will entitle you to common law trademark status, which is uh, something that is legally protects you within a certain geographic um, area. Uh, and you may even be able to apply for a state trademark, uh, yeah. which will give you a more limited protection. Um, but just be thoughtful as you go. Is it just a kind of a cool name that you can laugh about with your buddies or is it something that you know actually will help drive growth uh, of your company. And if it's the latter, then it's well worth taking the time and money to, uh, to do it right. And uh, it's, it's, as with many things, it's one of those things where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Just pay a little bit on the front end and you'll avoid a lot of heartache and expense on the back end. Yeah, I think that's right. And to dovetail a little bit on that for the kind of the, the, the retailers and the, the, or, or the folks that are producing the stuff that goes in the retail stores, the dietary supplements, the topicals, um, that stuff is not a commodity, but I think it's a lot of customers, if they're looking at it on a shelf, a bunch of dietary supplements with CBD sitting next to each other, um, you know, they're probably going to go on branding or the brands they recognize. And that's why this is something that I think is extremely important because um, it's tough to distinguish your, you know, your your whole hemp extract from others, you know, as long as you're getting it tested, kind of the, the, the bare basics, um, you know, a lot of people are going to get at this point, the way the market is now, you know, they may recognize a Charlotte's Web or something like that. So getting that sort of protection um, on a cool brand name for those kind of products is key. So and, and as Witt alluded to earlier, um, getting a trademark application, getting counsel to help you with that is not super expensive. Um, so it may be even less than an ounce of prevention. It's, it's, it's pretty economical and it can pay off a ton down the road. Uh, if somebody starts trying to copycat you. Heck yeah. Yeah. And for no other reason. Awesome. Hey guys, thank you so much. I mean, as always, um, we get good information from uh, Whit and Hunter whenever we have our opportunity to visit with the uh, Bradley Law Group, particularly in their cannabis uh, space of where these two guys reside. So 
Guys, thank you for being a part of the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest podcast, uh, as always. And until next time, uh, till we get to hear from you again, thank you for what you do. Thanks, Nick. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.